Welcome to the Before You Buy or Sell a Business podcast, where we help buyers and sellers learn more about the acquisition process, discuss recent transactions, and stay up to date on the latest news in the market. Here's your host, Jared Johnson. All right. Well, I'm really excited today. I've got Jeff Solomon here. Um, Jeff has acquired two businesses so far. So how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Jared. All right. Awesome. Well, you know, first thing I usually like to do is just kind of dive into your background. So maybe tell me a little about where you uh, where you grew up, if you went to college, all that. Sure. I grew up uh, in the suburbs of New York, in Westchester County. I went to undergrad at Dartmouth and I have a history degree there. Uh, and then I went to graduate school uh, at UCLA Anderson and from where I have an MBA. Cool. So you're brewing. Great. And so then uh, what did you do after college? So um, I took not a typical path. Uh, immediately after college, I moved to Colorado and lived in Telluride for a year as a ski bum. Um, <laughs> uh, moved back to New York, spent a year selling retail, uh, and then went to work for uh, a commercial and financial printing company in Manhattan, a family business, although not my family's business. Um, and I spent about three years there doing a variety of things that included um, some production work, but also uh, running purchasing um, and inventory control and uh, sort of uh, I was a bit of the utility guy. So if the bookkeeper was out, I did the bookkeeping that week. Cool. If the VP finance was out, I managed the cash flow. Um, and, and it was a it was an interesting business and in that it was growing business. Uh, when I left, it was about 11 million top line. Um, but they were doing probably 50 to 60% of their profitability in three two-week periods of the year um, around um, semi-annual and annual reports and uh, prospectuses for uh, mutual funds, which back then it was all still in paper. Yeah. So we would go from you know normally two shifts, five days with a little bit of overtime to running two 12-hour shifts, seven days. So we'd have a bunch of overtime. And we were, um, despite that, we were running the business on trade credit um, wow. without any loan. So we had to have really, really good relationships with our various vendors because we would have to expand and contract right. what we were doing with them over those periods. So I learned a lot about that. Yeah, that sounds like uh, probably learned more of that than doing your MBA. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably learned more, probably met more important people um, yeah. doing my MBA. Yeah, that that's kind of what I, I hear a lot of people tell me. I mean... You know, it's great um, to, to get that college education, but it's also good to make some good connections. So, you know, from there, um, you know, what made you kind of get into wanting to acquire a business? Oh, yeah. So my path again. So I, I, I got out of um, graduate school in 1998 uh, and I went and did a dot com startup. OK, um, so, so it was the right time, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, it was crazy <laughs> times. So that's June of 98. Uh, when I joined, I was employee seven. April of 2000, we had 180 employees in 18 cities after doing about $15 million of capital raise and three acquisitions. Um, we had a $30 million round that would have taken us to break even that summer that blew up as the capital markets turned, and we were out of business in December. Wow. Um, so after spending a couple of months with um, the CEO and um, the controller uh, selling off the pieces and winding down the entity, I found myself on the beach in L.A., in let's call it March of 2001. Okay. Um, and uh, I got the crazy idea that it would be fun to go work uh, in the casino industry. And so uh, I went and I started with um, Harris up in Reno in November of 2001. And I spent uh, about 15 years with Harris and Caesars and overall about 20 years uh, in the hospitality industry and corporate roles uh, and property roles. And I, I went back and forth between um, operating roles. I ran a bunch of casinos in Las Vegas uh, and corporate roles in either operations or marketing. Um, and so uh, my last role, I was the chief marketing officer of Diamond Resorts, which is a worldwide timeshare company mm -hmm. that was at the time owned by Apollo. Um, and I was laid off in March of 2020. Oh, um, and so as I started to think about the next thing, and um, I've got personal reasons why I needed to stay in Las Vegas. Um, and so I kind of pivoted and said, well, maybe it's time for me to think about uh, purchasing a business uh, and leveraging the, the 20 years of hospitality experience I had. And um, I actually looked at buying hotels with uh, a couple of partners and determined that I didn't have quite enough capital to do that effectively. You got to pay for the real estate and it's just, um, you got to have a lot more money to do that. Yeah. Um, so then sort of pivoted to restaurants and uh, started looking for um, opportunities there. And we've found two so far. So that's a 
pretty diverse background, but you know, what I like to usually see is when, when buyers kind of stay in what they know, you know, so hospitality, obviously you, you mastered that, um, you know, worked your way up all around doing lots of different things. So it made sense to mm-hmm. at least stay somewhere in the hospitality game. So, yeah. And my, you know, that's where my network, that's where my professional network is. And so the new business, I recently brought in a new front of house general manager and how do I know him? Well, through somebody I knew from Caesars and somebody he worked with at Cosmopolitan where we're sitting right now. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and somebody he knew. So cool. I got introduced to Ralph. Ralph was the director of food and beverage here at the opening. Uh, if you uh, if you know the the famous secret pizza here, oh yeah, well that's Ralph's recipe. Oh cool, yeah, um, Ralph's an East Coast guy, and um, so I spoke to Ralph. I was looking for a new front of house manager, and he had somebody who'd worked for him in the past and put us together. So cool, yeah. I've uh, I used to come out here a lot with with my friends. We mm-hmm. we'd end up there at you know three thirty in the morning every time. <laughs> yeah. You would have cast the thousands. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it's still always a long line. Now I just am too old to stay up that late. Um, great. So, okay, so let's talk about the first business. That's how I was introduced to you. I know you um, you were looking at a sushi restaurant mm-hmm. in Vegas. Um, how'd you find that listing? Uh, I found it really, I started talking to the various brokers around town. Um, and this one, um, it was of a size that the capital raise was easy and but it was significant enough that it could, you know, be a material thing as opposed to, you know, I also looked at some little businesses. At one point I was under contract to buy a, a small pizza place for, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. But, you know, that would have been kind of a, a side gig almost. And right. this, this was big enough that it had the opportunity to, if I went back into a corporate world, I could kind of keep it on the side, but it could grow into something, you know, more than that, mm-hmm. uh, which is really kind of where we've gone since then. Yeah. So the, the first one you looked at, um, did you have much negotiation back and forth on the, on the purchase price? I tried to, but the seller was kind of stubborn. So the negotiation actually was more time. So I actually mm-hmm. looked at that business, um, in let's call it the middle of 2020 at first. Um, and they were really looking to get paid based on what the business was doing pre pandemic. Mm. And, um, the conversation we had at the time was it was holding up reasonably well. Right. Um, but it was still down and nobody knew when we were going to come out and they still wanted to be paid based on what it was doing before. And I said, well, that's not realistic. And, and they're, attitude and response was, we get that today it's not worth that much, but for us, we're still making a good living off this. It's not that much energy for us to continue to run it. We're confident the business will bounce when the world comes out of, of what's going on. We're still profitable while this is cra- this craziness is going on. We'll just wait. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, that didn't, was, they didn't absolutely need to sell, so they kind exactly. of had a little leverage there. Yeah. And so- what happened then is around February, March of 2021, as I was looking, I'd gone through this thing where I almost bought this pizza place and then backed out because uh, when I went into diligence, I discovered that the seller was overstating revenues um, by eight and a quarter percent. You'll laugh and say, why eight and a quarter percent? He was including tax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, in any case, um, I saw that it was still for sale. And so I reached back out to the broker and we oh, had okay. conversations and they weren't particularly flexible on price or even um, tried to do something with uh, with a cancelable promissory note where there was an earnout, and they were like, "Listen, this is what we want to do, and otherwise we'll just wait." And so I decided that it was, you know, after doing the diligence, it was good enough to jump. So you you and I talked uh, a little bit before, and I you know know from working from you, you really like doing the due diligence, and you're good at it. Um, what are some of the main things you looked at on on that restaurant? Well, it's really you know. It's like any business, follow the money, Mm -hmm. right? So a restaurant realistically has, you know, three or four things that really matter, right? It's labor, it can be marketing, and it's, you know, various overhead, which includes utilities, rent, and all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, and then just making sure that the revenue numbers are good. Yeah. But when you've got tax returns and you've got bank state, so, so big thing is, you know, looking at tax returns and then and then digging through the bank statements, right? You know, a lot of small business owners pull a lot of cash out of their business and then want to get paid for it. And, you know, I have a problem with that because I'm just sort of taking you on faith. Yeah. Right. But 
these guys were running everything through the bank account. And so um, there were some oddities in their accounting, but nothing, nothing earth shattering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the cash that was going through the bank accounts and to the owners, like was consistent with what they said the business was making. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of the critical thing, right. Is these businesses trade on a multiple of, of, you know, let's call it adjusted cash flow. Mm -hmm. And you're really trying to figure out a, is that really how much cash is going through the business? And then B, is there anything missing? Right. So the one thing I missed in the first one is there was some, um, an extreme degree of deferred CapEx mm. um, and not even super expensive stuff, but stuff that ended up being very disruptive to the business. So we had, you know, nine months in, we had sort of a catastrophic month where we had electrical problems and um, the business, which is open seven days a week, we were closed that month, six full days and significant portions of five others. Um, and I had a bunch of food spoilage, so I didn't really save in cost of goods. Mm -hmm. um, my labor at the moment is overweighted to salaried and underweighted um, to hourly wage, um, not because that's how I want it, but because the hiring environment is challenging enough that if you find good people, you do what you need to do to keep them. Yeah. Um, and that's what I've been able to do to keep the place going. Yeah, that's been a common a common thing that I've been hearing from a lot of people is that, you know, obviously everybody understands that finding good labor is a challenge, but then it seems like the the people that understand that, the owners understand that are really kind of bending over backwards to keep them on yeah, staff. Yeah, and so, you know, I have, you know, I have in my kitchen um, there, I've got more managers than I really need and less line cooks than I really need. Mm. But the managers end up cooking. Yeah, there like, you go. And they're, all, and they're willing to do that. Um, you know, and we take good care of them in a variety of ways, but in any case, that means if I, if I'm closed 11 days, I don't, can't flex my labor as much as one would normally do. I wasn't able to flex my cost of goods because the power meant the refrigeration failed. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we had a, we had a rather disastrous month and then we ended up fixing it and, um, it hasn't been, a, you know, it had been a periodic problem. I now find out for years uh, that okay. wasn't really re revealed to me. Um, and there was a bit of a pointing at each other between the landlord and the former owner. Mm. Um, and so it just, you know, I, I learned to look a little more carefully at some of that stuff in the new one. You know, the new one business hadn't been open as long. It was in better physical condition. Uh, and I ended up getting some terms put in as well uh, with the agent. Because the other thing that happened in the first one is when the health department came in, uh, to do their transfer inspection, they made me redo the kitchen floor. Oh, wow. Which, you know, it is what it is, but I kind of yeah. wanted to make sure that I didn't get a, a big surprise like that again. And we yeah. didn't. <laughs> so it's, it seems like every deal you'll learn a little bit more of what, you know, obviously the financial stuff's a little easier to to kind of uncover by sure. looking at the bank statements and the tax returns, financials. You know, I, I ran large businesses. I ran casinos for a number of years. And if you can keep track of all the money running through a casino. <laughs> yeah, and um, all the regulation. Uh, yeah. A restaurant's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, as long as it's being done, everything, you know, as long as everything's running through the bank account. Correct. You know, if a place is taking a bunch of cash out of the business, then that's a little harder to, to keep track of. But so, you know, I sort of do that. You know, it's kind of intuitive. I mean, if, if you learn nothing else in a good MBA program, you learn how to tear apart a set of financial statements and figure out what's going on in the business. Right. You know, I enjoy doing it. It's not my favorite thing, but like I'm good at it and it's not hard. Right. It's just, it's just persistence. Yeah. I think a lot of <laughs> and knowing uh, what questions to ask. Correct. Yeah. A lot of buyers um, either kind of go to the extreme one way or the other where they don't look at anything and they just kind of take everything off face value, which on smaller deals, I can kind of see where it's, it, it might not be worth their time or sure. whatever, but then I have the whole other side where they're, you know, doing a quality of earnings. They're literally recreating the financial statements on a 350 deal. And you're kind of like, you know, banging your head against the wall. Like, come on. So, yeah, I mean, um, my deals have both been significantly larger than that. Mm -hmm. You know, they've, they've right. both been in the range, you know, between one and two million. Yeah. And so I think you got to be fairly, if I was buying a $350,000 business, it would be more around you know, making sure that the revenues are real. Right. And then 
you know, just understanding the fixed expenses, you know, things like rent and stuff. And then, you know, I know what the labor market is around here. And so just making sure that like it, it looks realistic, but I, I wouldn't go to the same level of diligence on a $300,000 business that I would on a $2 million business. Right. Well, it ended up working out. So with that one, other than having the the month of challenges of fixing, you know, a bunch of your, your equipment and stuff, has it been going well other than that? Yeah. I mean, I would tell you that that was a bigger problem than one might think because, so I come from, as I said, a marketing operations background and I've done a lot of work around customer behavior. Um, and, you know, I have a strong belief that customers get into patterns, mm-hmm. right? And most customers, once they're in patterns, will stay in the patterns unless something throws them out of their pattern. Um, there are a few who are, you know, at what we used to refer to as persuadable times in their life mm-hmm. cycle, um, but most customers are in patterns. Well, by being closed for 11 days, we broke the patterns of our customer base. And so, you know, there was a whole bunch of dynamics going on in the first half of um, that year as, you know, the year before had been just coming out of the pandemic. We were still doing, you know, historically high for any period other than in the pandemic amount of takeout and delivery. Um, And as it started transitioning, we were running, you know, in early 2021, Revenues a hair behind prior year, um, but then we were sort of through April and May, kind of ramping up and really getting to where we were going to go. And then June happened, and so Q3 we ran, even though we weren't closed, we ran significantly behind prior year. In Q4 we got a little closer, and we really late in Q4 is when we kind of got caught up to where we had been. And some of that was through pricing, but a lot of it was just getting you know gaining more customers and getting back into patterns. And so. You know, we're running this year, we're about eight or 9% above prior year, year to date. Oh, good. You know, we know that, you know, benchmarked against a group of Western U.S. full service restaurants, we're, you know, several points ahead. Yeah, of, I was going to say, of most our, most of what I've been seeing in this area and, and most like West Coast is they're coming back down again a little bit. Yeah, I think so. We use this really great software called Margin Edge. I don't know if any of your folks have used it. So mm-hmm. Margin Edge was created by a bunch of old restaurant people. And it's a software package and a service. Um, but essentially, for a really reasonable amount, I think it's $300 a month. Or if you buy a year at a time, you get 10% off that. Um, they, they fundamentally do a few different things. The first is they connect with your POS and with your accounting software provided you use, you know, kind of common packages. And um, you can send all of your invoices. You basically just take a picture of them or scan them and either send them over email or upload them via an app. And they do all the data entry into their system, which then feeds back into QuickBooks. Oh, nice. So essentially a bunch of bookkeeping got taken off our plate. You have to do a bunch of setup. Right. Then... If you put all your expenses through, it enables you to build things like daily P&Ls. Mm-hmm. Probably the Prometheus discovering fire piece of it is once you have all these items that you're purchasing in their system, you then go in and you enter in all your recipes, right? And you start at the, the sort of compound stuff that goes into your food, mm-hmm. you know, so sauces and all that stuff. But eventually you get to a point where you have essentially up-to-date plate costs on everything in the restaurant, right? And if the price of eggs goes up, right, the next time that you order eggs and send it to them and they put it in, it automatically changes oh, your plate costs. So I would love to play at, with that. <laughs> at, any, at any given time, you know, figure I'm one to two weeks in arrears based on how quickly I get them mm-hmm. the invoices and how and then they're, they're about a they're about a 72 hour business business hours from receipt to getting it into the system, but uh, you know, I have today, I can look at what is my plate cost for, you know, Loco Moco at, at our Hawaiian sushi restaurant. Yeah. And I pretty much know what it is. Wow. Right. As long as I've got control of portion size and all those things, and my recipes are correct. So we actually in the first restaurant raised prices twice last year. And the first time I only had, you know, doing it old school in Excel, I probably had plate costs on, you know, 10% of the menu, right? And so, but, you know, it was obvious we needed to raise price. Cost of goods sold had come up with mm-hmm. everything that was going on in the economy. And um, so I did a, 
I did a rather in-depth competitive shop. So I knew I wasn't like pricing myself above right. the neighbors. And we pretty much raised prices blindly, right? Other than I knew what the competitors were and there was this 10% of items I knew. When we did it, and that was, you know, in, I don't know, March or April of last year. When we did it late in the year, I had apps, I had plate costs for everything. And so we, you know, we drew a line and we said, okay, if it's below this, we're just going to leave the price, hmm. right? Unless we've got some reason where we're way below market. And if it's above it, we're going to try and take some price, right? You know, with, with competitive right. forces in mind. And then we also learned in that, that there were a couple of items on the menu that um, A, cost of goods was really high and B, was a little more um, vulnerable to market pricing. And again, you coming back to customer experience. In the past, sometimes they would like put stickers on the menu to change prices. I don't like to do that. Yeah. Um, so if the price is on the menu, that's the price until I change the menu. So we just, we took about, I mean, it's only four or five items on the menu, but four or five items on the menu, just say market price. No, it's a seafood thing. Mm, yeah. And so having seafood items at market price is not something that customers aren't used to. Right. We've had no pushback at all from customers. Great. But that's enabled us to, for a few key items, to, you know, have a little more flexibility in price. When and you so, keep your margins where they need to be. Right. Yeah, so which is which is huge like, in the restaurant Things world, like right. our poke by the pound. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's mostly fish. Yeah. Right. And, you know, mostly fish. And then, um, you know, one of the other things. So my, my first restaurant is a, it's a Hawaiian sushi restaurant. It's really almost too, or the best way to describe it, it's sort of a Hawaiian food hall all in one location. Mm. Right. So we have all your traditional Hawaiian um, lunch plates. We have a full sushi menu. We do authentic Hawaiian poke. um, And we do um, actually Hawaiian baked goods as well. Oh, nice. Right. So, you know, a lot of people out in the West Coast eat poke these days, but they Mm. eat what I have come to refer to as California poke, which (laughs) is poke bowls. Right. Um, In Hawaii, probably, I don't know, 70 or 80% of the poke sold is actually sold um, in you know deli light containers by weight, ah, okay. without the rice. So it's just it's fish sauce seasoning. Yeah, right. So there might be onion, there might be you know whatever yeah, else. Garlic, in it, but it's yeah, just, you're just buying it by the pound. Well, if most of what you're selling is the fish, you're really susceptible to changes in the price of salmon, for example. Right. So you know that's something that on, that's on the menu as a market price. The price of salmon goes up a buck. You know we, we raise the price a dollar. Right, and so that's enabled us to do some things like that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. But it's a it's a really powerful tool at a really reasonable price, and it's been incredibly helpful. I remember I did a deal like, oh man, it's probably been ten years now, and it was for a restaurant. The owner of the restaurant had been a like big regional manager for Home Depot. Mm-hmm. And so they're very price conscious and they pay attention to margins like crazy. And he ran his restaurant that way. And it was like fascinating to listen to him. And he would sit there and show me all the numbers. And he like was just had it dialed in and he'd say, you know, oh, well, I've got, you know, this, uh, this guy's calling me in, you know, Long Beach telling me he can pick up this fish for this price today and then so he's like trying to hurry up and get it in because it increased his margin for the day and stuff it was really interesting but i think that's one thing that uh, a lot of restaurant owners don't understand is that your margins are really what what keeps you you know keeps you profitable mm-hmm. of course you know you've, you've got to have staff and, and everything else but if you're not paying attention to the numbers and, and you're not adjusting when you need to then you're getting some big trouble yeah so. I, I, that's right and I, you know the way i tend to think about it i had a boss years ago at Harrah's who is, you know, kind of a legend in the industry. And he was always constantly re-examining costs. And, you know, I'm going to put words in his mouth. This isn't the way he would have explained it, but it's the way I sort of, is he was always looking at costs and he was, I would say, incredibly diligent about finding money you were spending that wasn't adding value. Mm. And he was ruthless about taking that out. But he would also take risks. um, And, the way I always viewed it is if you're constantly diligent about taking out costs that's not adding value, you can you can take some risks and gamble um, and you don't have to be right all the time. Yeah. Right. Because the reality is cost is easier to control. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you change the pricing, it is what it is. Revenues are harder and you're not going to be right all the time. And if you're not watching costs and you try you make a big you make a big play to grow revenue and you're wrong, you can get in trouble really quickly. Yeah. Um, and so that's the way I think about it is 
um, let's take them out. I've, you know, I've got a variety of things I've learned over the years. Another way I think about it is a basic two by two matrix, mm. right? Which you've seen, right? And the way I think about opportunities is small, large, easy, hard, mm. right? So large, easy opportunities are um, basically unicorns. They don't typically right. exist. <laughs> Every once in a while you get lucky and you find one. Small and hard, ignore because why in the world are you going to spend your time? We spend most of our time in most businesses thinking about large, hard, large and hard, mm-hmm. right? Is if I can do this, there's big upside, but it's a lot of work. And, and that's important to think about. But um, I've also learned over the years that if you can keep a list of small, easy opportunities and just keep knocking them off one at a time, A, they add up over time, but it also creates momentum in the business mm-hmm. and it keeps your team focused on the things that matter. Um, so that's, you know, that's how I think about it. And then, you know, I had a, a mentor who, you know, you know, ran a large restaurant um, group out of LA um, who said to me, uh, he said, volume cures all ills. So that's <laughs> the other side of it. You do need to watch your costs, but ultimately if you drive enough revenue, it's easy to take care of the rest of it. And if you don't, it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. So I tend to be very focused on customers and the customer experience and quality. Um, in both of my restaurants, to some degree, the previous owners um, had a tendency to you know, do what I would refer to as stepping on $20 bills to pick up quarters. Mm. Um, and I don't tend to think about things that way. You know, that may optimize your cash flow in the short term, but I don't view this as a short term investment. Right. Um, and so uh, when things break, I fix them um, and I fix them so they stay fixed. Yeah. And that may cost me more now, but I know it'll save me money down the road. Your team appreciates that. The customers appreciate it. And so, you know, my chefs will come to me all the time or my managers and say, hey, we can save this money here. And, and they have come to learn that my answer is, well, if we can do it cheaper at the same quality, great. If we can do it at better quality at the same price, great. But we're not sacrificing quality, period. Yeah. Like that's that's a non-negotiable to me. Because in a restaurant, like if the food's not good, nothing else matters. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it makes sense. The other stuff all matters, but if the food's not good, you're done. <laughs> yeah. So man, that's some that was a lot of great advice just <laughs> right there for business too. So I have a tendency to rant a bit, sorry. Uh, no, it's it's totally fine. You know, great, great information. So all right, so we'll move on to the the latest one you acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, same thing. We're out, kind of looking, talking to brokers, trying to mm-hmm. trying to find it. Okay, um, how much negotiation did you have on that one? Pretty significant. Um, okay, I ended up buying it through the same broker I bought the first one. Right, and uh, Alan, Jesus, what's Alan's name? Alan Horowitz. Horowitz, yeah. Um, he's a really, really well known business mm-hmm. broker in town. He is, in my opinion at the highest levels of people in town. He um, he turns down a lot of business yeah. because he has standards of what he will sell. And if you don't have good information, he's just not interested. Um, uh, and he's he's an honest broker. Yep. Um, uh, and there are certainly other honest brokers, but there are some very used car salespeople <laughs> yeah. in, in the business. Um, so anyway, literally I was just starting to look again and he said, I got something that's not even on the market yet, but I think you really should look at, and it would be really complimentary to what you're doing. And it, it so happens that pre-pandemic, I was a regular customer of this business. Oh, okay. It's, I mean, the first business is 15 minutes from my house. This one's like six minutes from my house. Um, and uh, it is the third closest sushi business to my house. Uh, <laughs> and the other two are 30 seconds closer, not significant. Okay. And... Um, it's got some really unique things it does. And it had a lot of really interesting, pretty straightforward upside, but it was a Korean family, very, you know, deep into the restaurant business and quality and product and service was all excellent, but they were not super sophisticated. Hmm. And as I got into the due diligence, there was, um, there was an ad back that was significant that was based on a misunderstanding of the previous financials. And, you know, I just kept drilling and drilling into it. And I was like, oh, that's not real. That's just in the wrong place. It's still there. It just, it shouldn't be there. You're right. But it should be over here. Mm-hmm. So net, net, like that's actually, that's actually a real cost. And again, you know, Alan kind of said to the sellers, 
if we went back out to market, I'd have to lower the price now that I know this. Yeah. And to me, that's, you know, that's a sign of, of how good he is that he's, yes, he represents the sellers in the best job, but he's, he'll tell them the truth because he's in demand. He's turning away business. And so no one deal is that critical to him, right? He'll, he'll always have other people waiting to, to use him. Yeah. And so he'll tell, he'll tell his sellers the truth. Yep. And I, you know, as a buyer, that's a much easier thing to work with. Um, uh, than you know, some of these other things we talked about where, you know, I'll get prospectuses that want me to buy, you know, based on income and it's, you know, the financials are 15 months old or they want me to buy on a projection of the neck of this year's revenue of this year's. I'm like, why would I buy on a projection? Yeah. I'm like, do it and then I'll pay you for it. Yeah. <laughs> but did we not learn anything from COVID? <laughs> yeah. Right. So the beautiful thing about this existing business is it was a family business and so you had three family members all working extremely hard. And they had, at a certain point, shut down on Mondays because for their own sanity. Yeah. I professionalize my operation. I bring in more management. I don't do everything myself. And so to me, that was a really easy opportunity. And we're not there yet because I've got to hire some people. But you know, based on my other business, my guess is by opening Monday, I will grow the business, you know, a little ramp up here, but probably 12 to 14% top line. Yeah. Well, Overnight. That's big. Uh, which is enormous um, because my labor won't go up 12 to 14%. It'll go up, you know, 7 to 10%. Right. And um, my cost of sales will go up proportionally, but everything else, like my rent's not going to go up. Right. My power bill's not going to go up materially. Right. And so it's just an easy opportunity. And then, you know, the other big opportunity there is in the pandemic, working with these third parties became, you know, an absolute necessity. Right. Now it's skinny business because they take a big chunk out of it. But, mm -hmm. you know, what I've learned is as long as your labor can service it and you actively manage it, where like the restaurant gets really busy and your kitchen can't come, just keep up, just shut it off for a while. You know, particularly in slower periods, it's just extra business. Mm -hmm. um, they're not doing any of that because they didn't want to give up the, the points of margin, which I understand. But like if it's incremental business and it's, you know, that kind of business is really incremental. That and then the other thing is they were doing essentially no marketing. They didn't have a website. They had social media accounts that hadn't been touched since 2021. Wow. And I've got a really good marketing firm I work with on both my businesses here um, who works with independent restaurants in Las Vegas. Um, and they work with some of the really hot restaurants around town and some other places, and they're really good at it. And so, you know, between the operational improvements and the marketing opportunities, even though we're not where I want to be yet. Like I know there's all this growth opportunity and that's why I was able to, you know, I probably stretched my valuation a little bit on the business, but knowing that I had these very straightforward ways to grow the business without, you know, it wasn't just, well, you know, I'm going to hope I can grow revenues. It's like, no, no, I know I can grow revenues. All I have to do is open. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> right? you also had the experience with the other one. So you know what you're, what... But, but particularly the, the, the seventh day, like, I've been in there doing work on a Monday and there's people coming up and, and it hasn't been open for three years on Mondays. Oh, wow. And there's people coming up trying to come in every every Monday. Huh. So, and, and in fact, probably our single biggest competitor across the street is not open on Mondays. And so I feel very strongly that once we get open, it's a really good opportunity for the business. Yeah. Which I, just, I just need more people. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can find them. So, so you had some, you know, good negotiations there, ended up, you know, coming to a purchase price. Mm -hmm. Um, we were able to to reconnect and yep. work on the the transaction. One thing I wanted to talk about that I think uh, we probably haven't covered too much um, in the past is uh, having investors mm -hmm. um, help with with some of the down payment. So maybe talk a little bit about um, you know how you did that and some advice for somebody that's looking to do that. Sure. You know, the honest answer is it it was probably a little easier for me than it would be for a lot of people. I have. A large number of friends and family members who have, you know, significant income and therefore mm -hmm. significant capital that's available to invest. And the way I've designed these is um, the people that I've had invest in the business, and it's it's all been friends and family to this point. They're investing an amount that is small enough such that if the business goes to hell and they lose the whole thing, they'll be fine. They'll still, not that they, they'll still be your friend. <laughs> yeah. Not that they want to lose the money. Of course. Nobody does. But you think about, um, you know, if a restaurant trades at, you know, 
somewhere between two and three and a half times cash flow is sort of a typical number, mm -hmm. right? And then if you can lever the business up, um, you know, we've bought both of these businesses essentially through SBA financing, putting 10% down. Right. You know, the returns on investment are material mm -hmm. and really good, even with, you know, what interest rates have done, which has hurt the cash flow a little bit, but um, the returns on investment are significant. Um, and so I can create, you know, really nice cash flow for friends and family, you know, and me hopefully. And um, that, that's how I've done it. So and it's just, you know, and just talking to him and I, particularly I wanted to make sure the first one was really, really successful. Had it not been for the problem in June, my investors would have their original investment back now a year and a half later. Wow. They yeah, don't. That's, that's really fast. They yeah. don't. Um, but it's only because of that. We got them back. I think they got 40% of their investment back in the first two quarters. Wow. Um, but I haven't done a distribution since Q1 of last year. Yeah. They still have to be happy with right, that. I, I was mean, on the path to doing one in Q. Well, they all came into the second deal. <laughs> yeah, there um, you go. You know, and I was able to do on the second deal, you know, I put up over half the capital on the first deal. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't put up as much on the second deal. I just structured it so that I have control of the business. Yeah. Um, I put up more like uh, 25%. Um, and I have a little bit more equity than that. I take a promote because I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for your listeners, basically, I have equity that I get that's the same as all the other investors. And then I have a piece that I get for putting the deal together. And then I also take a, you know, a moderate salary. Right. Right. Um, and so for me, the returns are, you know, even better than they are, I think, but I'm also working. <laughs> yeah. And you're, and you're also, you know, pledging personal guarantee on the, on the Absolutely. Loan there's well. there's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff like that, but you can do really well for people. You know, if you don't know, it gets a little more complicated if you don't have friends and family. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, my attorneys were trying to tell me that I should be looking at like um, some PE funds or something. No, like no, 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 no. From a legality standpoint, oh. they were talking about security registration stuff, mm. and I, and I kind of said, "Well, you know, what would that cost?" And um, I think for this deal, they said it was going to cost you know twenty five thousand dollars, <laughs> and I said, "So what you're telling me is, I, I should put up more than ten percent of the purchase price of the business, just for the legal." You know, I was like, "Yeah, that's not happening, yeah. right?" And the, but the reality of the way the securities laws works is there's a waiver for friends and family who are um, is it qualified investors or ready? Yeah, qualified investors. Are qualified yeah. investors. And, you know, my friends and family are all qualified investors. Um, if you don't know people like that, it's going to get a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly still ways to do it. You know, and plus now I get to help my friends and family have a nice source of income. Right. Um, so... You know, that's how I would tend to think about it with small businesses. How do you get, you know, friends and family who've got a certain amount of capital? But what I, you know, again, the way I think about it is I don't want them putting capital at risk that they can't lose. Right. Nobody wants to lose capital. No. But you don't want people struggling to pay the rent because something goes wrong in the business. Yeah, exactly. And so that's how I thought about it. And then it's just, you know, I do hire lawyers to structure deals and, mm -hmm. and read contracts because, you know, little cost here saves you big headache later. Yeah. And definitely. so, you know, it's all, you know, wait, when they wanted me to pay more than 10%. And I was like, I can do this with the waiver. They're like, you can, we would sort of, I said, okay, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was like, if I do a $20 million deal, then I'll, then I'll talk right. to you about registration. Yeah, maybe in a couple of years, we'll get to that point. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, a $2 so. million deal is just not worth a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's great to definitely talk about that. So, you know, we've seen more and more people do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's a it's an excellent way um, to get somebody into into a deal. What I like to kind of say with that is, it's got to still be somebody that has good experience. If you wanted to acquire a sushi restaurant and you had no hospitality background, you had sure. no experience. First of all, your friends and family are probably going to tell you no. Right. But second of all, um, you know, as a listener out there, you really kind of want to say, hey, this is what I've been doing. Um, I'm going to stay in my lane and I'm going to be able to acquire this because I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Then come grab a couple of investors to help you with the down payment. Not, even if you're not short on the liquidity to to put it in, which you would have been fine doing, yeah. it, it still helps to kind of mm -hmm. bring that in. You have some cash reserves now. You can buy another one if something pops up. Well, part of how we had the disaster in June, mm -hmm. just my, my bank balance went down. It was annoying, but yeah. like, it wasn't disastrous. We weren't living on a knife edge. Right. It's because you didn't put every dime you had into the deal. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, and I had a I had a bank balance for a rainy day. Right. 
And um, yeah, I think that's which as a bank we love to see. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the right way to think about it. And it's listen, there are ways to get around that if you have the right business partner. Mm-hmm. Or so, you know, one of the realities of me is while I don't run the dining room day to day, I could. Yeah. Right. My experience running casinos, if I had to run a dining room day to day, I had to schedule the servers. Like I can do that. Right. It's not the best use of my time, but I can do that. Yeah. But I couldn't run a kitchen. Right. I could probably schedule it, but I couldn't do it. Yeah. Rolling right? sushi. Could I, could, I, <laughs> could I learn to do it? Probably, but it's right. like, it's not a good use of my time. So, you know, on the first deal, um, part of my terms was that I got to put the executive chef under employment contract mm-hmm. as one of the contingencies of the deal that I made sure he was bought in. Now, I also gave him a profit sharing stake in the business to make him feel like an owner. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the second one, you know, interestingly enough, I was thinking about, I was looking at it and well, I saw lots of opportunity because the family was really running the business and I knew they were exiting. I was getting ready to pass because I was like, I just, you know, my one business doesn't have a lot of extra staff. And I just like, if one or two key people in the kitchen go away, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right as that was happening, somebody came to me. Um, who was a friend and former boss of my exec chef at the first restaurant. And this is a really talented chef Mm -hmm. who's got multiple years experience at major national Asian brands, um, including Nobu. Yeah. Um, That's probably the highest you can get. Yeah. Um, And, but also small family run businesses. Yeah. um, Has experience here. And so has a network in town and he had heard about what we were doing and he was, he was in a place in his career where he just wasn't happy with the opportunity he has. He was getting compensated well, but he just wasn't having fun. Right. And he wasn't finding it interesting and he wasn't growing. And he came to me and said, I'm hearing really good things about what you're doing. I'd love to come work with you. Now, I couldn't have afforded him at the one restaurant, but I knew if I put him over both of them that I could afford him and that he would give me the security to know that that I could lose somebody at the new place and be okay. Yeah. And so again, I put him under contract and then I finished the deal. Yeah. Right. So it's it's it, you know a lot of it's about knowing what you're good at mm-hmm. um, and making sure you've got really good people that you're committed to them and they're committed to you to cover the pieces that you're not as good at. Yeah. Right. And I think that's true in all businesses. Right. Uh, you know, I've seen failures in the casino business. And you think about a casino business and it's. It's a fairly complex business. It's not particularly complicated, but it's really complex, right? You're in the hotel business, you're in the casino business, you're in the restaurant business, you're in the food, uh, you're in the nightclub business sometimes, yeah, you're in the entertainment business. Landlord. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I can think of one particularly, you know, in some ways successful president of casinos in town who came from the hospitality side. And on the hospitality side, he's as good as anybody. Good leadership, hotel, food, like he knows that stuff cold service levels all of it um and branding too but even though he spent a lot of time in the casino world he never really learned the casino operation side of it and the casino marketing side of the business and um he was running a business in town that was doing well um but at a certain point he left and they brought in a person who had a deep casino background and the place doubled in ebitda in a relatively short period Wow. Because he had surrounded himself with other hoteliers. And so his casino just wasn't working that well. And somebody came in who that was what they were, their bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And they just started, you know, blocking and tackling. And all of a sudden there's a lot more money around. So, wow. um, you know, I've always thought about, as I think about building teams, and it's not a much smaller level, but it's know what you're good at, know what you know, know what you don't know, and make sure you got other people who know the things you don't know. Yeah, that's that's excellent and, and, advice. And treat them like owners. Yeah. And so my key people, they get, you know, if the business makes more money, they make more money. Yeah. And I'm trying to have everybody kind of be successful together. I don't that's need perfect. To, I don't need to make all of it. Yeah, exactly. No, it, it, at the end of the day, they're going to take care of you. So, yeah. Yeah, it works. So, all right. So obviously we got that one done. I'm assuming it's going well. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what would you say was like the biggest challenge, um, either on that deal or the first one? I mean, the biggest challenge in the current environment is hiring people. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a really, really tough environment. I'm, I'm flabbergasted by how people are handling looking for work. 
where if we get 10 applications for a job that we reach out to contact, we might get two or three responses. Wow. And then if we get 10 responses, seven or eight of them will show up. We've had people we've offered jobs to who then just never show up or never and respond. Or I've even had people accept the job, handshake, start onboarding, and then just vanish with no, with no call, no email. Now, some of them do, but it's been shocking how hard it is to find good people. That, that's just so weird to, to think like, I mean, have you tried to understand it? I mean, have you pinpointed what it is? It's an employee market right now. Yeah. It's just that's the nature of the beast. And, and some of these people have never, you just don't have enough experience of being in a difficult employment market to mm. know that you don't burn bridges. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, that's... listen, I had a, I had a sushi chef at the new place who, you know, had been there for seven years, um, was the number two sushi chef there, but you know, he had a fairly senior role there. He was getting well compensated. Um, a month in, he basically told my, you know, my exec chef that he was leaving and that that day was his last day. By the way, I just heard this morning that he's already gotten fired from his new job. Oh. <laughs> right. And like, so I don't, I don't want people to suffer. It's not that, but yeah. like if he had come to me and, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty open with folks, if he'd come to me and said, Hey, I know you just bought the business, but I've been talking to these other people for a while. I have this really good opportunity. And it was, it was, it was a promotion. It was yeah. a corporate gig. I need to take it. I'm giving you my two weeks. I would have said, great. Good luck to you. And if things ever change, you can come back and talk to us. Right. But now he's burned the bridge and it's yeah. not that big a city. Yeah. All right. So you've covered quite a bit of, of knowledge and experience here and I really appreciate it. Um, at the end, I always like to ask, uh, you know, two questions. Mm-hmm. First one is, and I think you covered it a little bit, but um, did you or do you have a mentor? I mean, I've had a bunch of mentors over the years. You know, my father was a big mentor when he was still alive. Um, uh, I had a mentor when I lived in L.A., ran this um, entrepreneurial study group when I was in business school. Okay. And we got introduced to a new entrepreneurial business every every month. Oh, cool. So that was sort of a fascinating thing. Um, during my time at Harris and Caesars, I had a couple of different mentors over the years. Even when I haven't had a formal, pro, you know, formal mentor thing, you know, I, what I've tried to do is look at everybody that I work with or for and like, okay, what are the things they do really well? And are there things that I can learn and use from that? Um, what are the things they don't do well or things I can learn that, you know, and just do it in a way that's, you know, authentically Jeff, right? I can't be somebody else. I can only be me. If I try and be someone else, I think I'll fail. But um, I can certainly take pieces of how they think about the business and how they think about leadership and things like that. So I've had a bunch of them and I've been fortunate that way. That's excellent. Yeah. All right. Final question. What motivates you? What motivates me? Yeah, um, obviously you've, you've been successful at, you know, various things and including being a ski bum. Um, um, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, I've got a 13 year old daughter and taking care of her and providing for her motivates me, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I love business. Like, and so, you know, before business school, I was in the printing business. Um, my dot com was a participatory sports thing. Right. And then I was, you know, hospitality, you know, mostly in casinos, but then my last business was timeshare. But, you know, I like interacting with and providing great experiences for customers. You know, I really enjoy um, building strong teams um, and uh, getting people where, you know, it's more than a job for them. Right. Um, you know, and this is probably a good thing. When I have my conversation with the exec chef at the first restaurant, when I was putting him under contract, and he's, he's a great guy, grew up on the Big Island, Hawaii. Um, and he grew up in this business. He started 10 years ago as a cashier. Oh, wow. Right. Um, and worked his way up. And he became the exec chef when the previous owner's sister retired back to Hawaii about six to nine months before I bought the business. You know, he's late 30s, single dad. Um, but, you know, one of the things I said to him is I said, listen, you're going to teach me kitchens and restaurants more than I know them already. And I'm going to teach you how to do business. I said, and if everything goes really well, someday you'll buy the thing from me. Um, and I, like, I really believe that, mm-hmm. right? I want him to feel like he's got a part of it and like he can learn so that someday he can have a restaurant because there are so many people that just don't know. There are a lot of successful business owners and, you know, part of it's just the willingness to take the risk um, and to do the work and to do the hard work. Well, 
I know what this guy's work ethic is like. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, how do we mitigate risk over time for him so that he has that opportunity to provide for his family that I'm having for mine? Yeah. So it's, it, uh, it, it kind of comes full circle when you look at it that way. That's, mm -hmm. that's great. So, man, I really appreciate all the, all the advice. I feel like, uh, we could have done a, an MBA course <laughs> with all the, the business knowledge as well. So, um, you know, what's next for you? Are you going to keep looking for more restaurants? Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, get this second one dialed in. Um, but I've, you know, I've started to poke around in case I find a great opportunity. Cool. But, you know, I would presume, you know, unless I find something like, God, I have to go after that. You know, six months from now, I'll probably get serious about finding the next one because mm -hmm. it takes a while. Yeah. Right, these processes, and, you know, especially if you do SBA financing, they're going to make <laughs> everything take longer. And, yeah. and as, as you said, I do these a little more in a little more complex way than some folks, mm -hmm. right, with my investors. And that makes the whole process more complicated. Yep. Um, but, you know, you, you, I can be persistent and I can be patient. And, and again, I'm typically buying businesses that are successful mm -hmm. um, and that have existing leadership teams because that enables me to leverage the things that I know and I do well. Um, it also creates a situation. It's funny when I talk to friends, they hear I've gotten into the restaurant. Go, oh, that's such a tough business. And, um, there's some truth in that, but a lot of that I think comes from, um, the reputation around people who start restaurants. Mm -hmm. And the reality is if you start a restaurant from scratch, right, it is a race of, can you ramp revenues fast enough? that you get to break even before you run out of money. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's, the, that's the, the, the battle. The way I'm doing it, the businesses are well capitalized. They have adequate working capital, maybe slightly more than adequate working capital. Um, and I have solid revenues on day one. And so we don't live on a knife edge and it gives me the time to figure out where the opportunities are and get it dialed in. Because, you know, if, if you're starting from zero and the business loses, Ten or twenty thousand dollars a month—that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. But like, I have a month where we lose ten thousand dollars. Not that I like losing ten thousand dollars, but it's like we sort of shrug and keep going, right? Is there anything to learn? Why did we lose money? Was there, you know, was there an unpredictable revenue shortfall that we couldn't know? Did we not manage our labor appropriately? Did we not manage other costs? And okay, what do we do? But it's—it's it's not going to put the business at risk. Right. We're not running along on a knife's edge where a bad month and the, and we can be upside down and. And you see it all over the place. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on for the next one. I, I really you. appreciate you spending some time with me and dropping all this knowledge for us. I appreciate uh, you getting the deal done. <laughs> no problem. All right. We'll be Thanks, ready Jerry. for the next one. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this podcast informative and helpful. Please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. For more information, or if you'd like to discuss a transaction, please go to www.jaredwjohnson.com.